This New America NYC event took place on November 29, 2017, and is entitled "Making Health Work: A New Prescription for Community Vitality." This event features Esther Dyson, Dr. Erminia Palacio, Mamie Kaur, Melanie Lavelle, and Dan Goldberg. Small crowd, I'm sure everyone can hear. Um, so I, I'm hoping to uh, speak as little as possible, so we can hear from our distinguished panelists as much as possible. But uh, obviously, this discussion is framed around what we're investing in, what we're not investing in, and how we can think of healthcare as more than just one particular service we deliver. So I'm going to toss out a very broad question to start, and, and hopefully the discussion will, will proceed from there. But can each of you discuss in your own mind what we should be investing in when we talk about healthcare to make sure that we get Not just outcomes in terms of lower obesity rates, but a, a broader view of the outcomes we're hoping for. And we could start any which way, but since you're closest, sure. So I'll.、Um, my name is Vinmit Kaur. I'm with、uh, City HealthWorks, <coughs> and I'll start I, from kind of where we sit and our vantage point in terms of not necessarily answering the full breadth of that question, but、um, certainly an important starting point, which is within the healthcare sector, we spend, you know. Trillion dollars a year on our healthcare, and a lot of what we spend on is unnecessary or too much of certain services. We put a lot of money into chemicals, into our bodies, into drugs, into devices, into you know technologies, but、um, have a strong cultural resistance to putting money into prevention. But I will you know also qualify that it's not. I think we think of prevention as being costly because we think of You know,、um, essentially, it's a more human. It's, it takes different forms, but、um, uh, it's also a huge lack for people who are already sick.、Um, and so, as most of you who are, if you're in healthcare, certainly are aware of, most of our spending is on our people who are sicker, who who have more vulnerabilities. And、um, I think there is some.、Um, Exciting momentum in the country right now,、um, where even in red states you have Medicaid directors saying we need to do more to shift our、uh, use of dollars towards services, towards activities that are value-based.、Um, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, some of the other panelists will certainly speak more about other broader social determinants of health. But、um, I think one of the big things that we could be doing more of that's quite simple is just equipping people with the knowledge. The confidence and the capability to self-manage their medications, and the next twenty, thirty years of their life when they're diagnosed with a chronic condition,、um, and that is for our, you know, from our experience with City Health, where it's been fascinating because we hire folks who are not clinicians to help people understand these conditions, and、um, a lot of what we spend our time on is more medical. It's their medications. It's you know, it's not just the social stuff. It's but stuff that should have really been taken care of at that clinic,、um, uh, but that you know is needed in a, in a different form. And so I'd say there's a lot of room for change, you know, by shifting use of dollars just within this industry. So,、um, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with the guests. I think I would. Begin by saying part of it is around how we think about what investments in health really mean, and I'm very specific around investments in health. 
I know that it was framed around investments in healthcare, but I, I think that that's an important distinction. Because if our starting point is investments in healthcare, then we are driving straight towards a medical model. Uh, and I think that our thinking about the opportunities for investment get constricted, if that's our starting point. We're thinking about investments in health and the choices that we make as a society, both with public, especially with public dollars, certainly as a government official, think about the choices that we're making as a society and with public dollars, but also uh, with private dollars. Um, if we shift our framework, we start to think about the value proposition for those investments. Uh, I think, unfortunately, that the framework at the federal level shifted in the opposite direction right now. We're seeing de-investments in broad uh, social infrastructure. We're seeing de-investments in healthcare. We're seeing de-investments in health. And I would have to say that I feel uh, it's critically important in this time for municipalities such as New York City to really sort of step into the fold. And I think that this is an example where we have framed some of our broad policies by understanding what the health implications are. So it's, uh, you know, my, in my prior life, uh, I worked for a while at uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, who really sort of was a leader in coining the phrase that health is about where we live, learn, work, and play. Um, and so if you start to think about affordable housing policy that the New York is, the city is investing in, uh, if you start to think about sort of some of the issues around community policing, that's really about thinking about building health where we live because it's very clear the data are incontrovertible, that safe housing, safe, affordable, quality housing is a really important uh, predictor of individual and community health. Uh, investments in education throughout uh, is really an investment in health, not just in the health of the students that are being educated in that time, but really in terms of thinking about their long-term health outcomes as adults, the risk of chronic diseases as adults. So thinking about those investments very intentionally in terms of what their health impacts are, I think is one of the important things that we can start to do uh, you know, as uh, National Academy of Medicine says, collectively as a society, to set the conditions in which people can be healthy. I think those are really uh, some of the critical benchmarks. Um, and it's certainly true that uh, health care is, uh, you know, it's not an either or. It's certainly to that we need a robust uh, health care system. We need a robust publicly financed health care system. Uh, uh, in the United States currently, as, as we do in, in New York City. Um, but we need to think more broadly about what's going to get the bang for the buck, and there are lessons internationally. And if you look at some of the data that's uh, been compiled and produced um, internationally, if you look at the whole pie, and you think about funding for social services or social determinants, social infrastructure, and you think about funding for healthcare, um, and you look at the proportion, those countries where the proportion is different than what we have here in the United States on a sort of uh, GDP basis. If you look at the proportion of scales among developed countries, this is sort of really talking about uh, industrialized uh, developed countries, those countries that shift the proportion 
towards a greater amount of social services than we do here have better important health outcomes, better outcomes on infant mortality, better incomes on longevity. So I think we really need to think about what are the international data, how do they play out here, and how do we re really think about where our investments yield the greatest health value. Hello. Hi, uh, I'm Melanie Lavelle, Benefit Kitchen, um, and thank you uh, for uh, to New America uh, for WOW. I'm just saying, there's a lot of ladies on a panel here, and that's not ever accidental. And at Workbench, this place is gorgeous. And uh, I find uh, I'm in a in a strange. Um, you know, we have the city, we have um, nonprofits doing the work on the ground. We have. Esther Dyson, um, you, you just get your own title there. <laughs> um, but that w I'm a tech startup, and that's not ever where I thought I would be in life. Um, I started um, advocating for getting women and children out of poverty, and when we found that eighty billion dollars are being left on the table every year in government benefits that are already allocated, that are already in play but that families aren't getting because you have to apply. Like, because IRS can find you, but apparently nobody else can when it comes to getting these benefits. And you know, I personally have spent three hours this week talking to the IRS and the New York State Department of Health to figure out my own Obamacare and my kids chip. Like this is, this is problematic. And 80 billion left on the table especially under an administration where these resources are coming even tighter in these communities. What we do, we have an app, you put in your income on your family type, we tell you what you're eligible for and how much. And the how much is important to me because if you're only going to get $10 in food stamps, maybe it's not worth it to apply. If it's 450 you get to make that distinction. You, you're not going and begging for anything. You get to make your own financial plan, your own, unless we all think that this is poverty. Poverty is a lot, I pitch all the time, and it's the other tech startups that are running their own screenings while I'm up there. You know, entrepreneurs are just as poor as, you know, unless you're, you're not. But um, <laughs> that, that what we all think of as poverty is changed drastically from Ronald Reagan time. That what we all are, future of work, fewer and fewer of us have benefits from our workplaces. And that is who is picking up that slack? You know, we're showing you what of 18 federal, state, and local benefits. How does that end me in a healthcare conversation? Um, these are big benefits. You know, Medicaid is $550 billion a year. You know, $550 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, and what we did, because we're not a nonprofit, I do good work, but not a nonprofit. I have to say that. A woman in social impact, they always think you're a nonprofit. I'm not a nonprofit. <laughs> um, what we do instead, we give it to free, anybody. Um, we're live in about seven, eight states now. Anybody can come use it. What we do is we help groups that rely on that funding, hospitals, rely on Medicaid. They often are still using pen and paper charts to figure out who's eligible for charts, paper. Like, I just, it's 2017 that they're testing people for Medicaid eligibility 
pen and paper is crazy. Um, and there's this population health stuff where it's like this doctor in University of California, San Francisco said, you know, socioeconomic status is the most powerful predictor of disease, disorder, injury, and mortality, which is crazy. That means like just because you're poor, you're gonna have every bad thing happen to you. It's it's that because you're poor, you're gonna have all these other just the fact that you're living in poverty creates its own tension, which tires your body, which makes you more like it's and I'm not a doc, obviously, I'm not a doctor. Um, but that by helping the doctors and the hospitals not just get the family some Medicaid, but treat the whole patient, help put them to the food stamps that can help that family get food, get them the low-cost internet so that they can stay in touch with their, with their doctor, where you can have you, electricity so you can keep your insulin. Like, these are all, these benefits are part of the bigger picture of, you know, we kind of look at ourselves as band-aiding a bad-paying job. Like, you, you have a job, it's not covering your needs. We kind of are the, where the doctors are taking care of your health, we can help fix the rest of your economic um, situation. And by doing so, hopefully let you focus on getting a better job, getting more education. Like, if you're always in that hunger zone, you're never gonna get ahead. And um, so one, one group we've been working a lot with our hospitals and, um, healthcare providers across the country to help them understand. Because if you think politicians and people running this stuff understand Medicaid and understand the rules, so they don't, I mean, I get, I get asked, all, you know, well, who's eligible? We've reverse engineered the formulas. The government doesn't give us any of the data. We've had to create the formulas ourselves and um, create the software <coughs> so that we could open up the data that if the government wanted you to get these benefits, you would. Not you guys. You guys are very kind. New York City is very progressive in, in this world. But, um, you know, across the country, how to shine some light on the, on the rules and who can, who, who can benefit. Thank you. All right. Great. Thanks. So I'm going to try and remember what the question was. I think it had something to do with health and investment. And briefly explain... What is Way to Wellville? What is health? And the question. So Way to Wellville, very briefly, is a 10-year nonprofit project in five communities around the US. They had to be under 100,000. They applied. It, it wasn't a nice white lady coming to tell people how to live. But five communities that were working, trying to make their members healthier without a great deal of success, we offered to give them a bunch of advice and so forth. And 42 applied, we picked five. So it was originally a five-year project. The first thing I learned about health was it became a 10-year project. <laughs> uh, what is health? I, I went in there thinking, you know, we, we've got to be, we've got to help them create these health improvement projects in a way that's more accountable and industrial. And one of my partners argued vigorously that that was too industrial. And ultimately, I listened to him, and health is something you can't produce 
but you can cultivate it. It grows, it's, you can do a lot to help people grow their own health. Health ultimately is not the absence of disease, but it's, it's a capacity to deal with stress, with infections, with everything that life throws at people. And if you're poor, it throws a lot at you. You lose that health when you're abused as a child, when you're under constant stress. A little bit of stress is good, we call it exercise. But too much stress and, and you just get stretched out like a rubber band. And that's what's happening to way too many people in this country. So the first thing you do to invest in health is you start early, because it's much harder and more expensive to get it back if you've lost it. Which leads to the third thing, most of us and this country in general is renting health. It's paying for not actually cultivating health, but just enough of it to get by. And by the time you turn 40 or 50 and you've been stressed out, you become vulnerable to addiction. If not earlier, you'd be, you know, things catch up with you, you get diabetes. If you get Alzheimer's, you get Alzheimer's earlier. It's, it's not that you're not going to die, but all these bad things happen when you run out of health sooner and you have to live with the ill health a much longer time before you die. So the challenge is how do we make the business case for investing in health? And in a sense, what we're trying to do in Wellville is do a simulation of what it would be like if we paid to invest in health collectively. That, in other words, that means tax people to invest in the kinds of conditions, not just the kind of health care that produces health. And then do that effectively because you're focused on outcomes and accountable for programs working. I want to pick up on that a little, and I'm curious for, to hear from all of you about how we do make that case, because as a society, we are going back decades, we're not very good at long-term thinking. Deputy Mayor, you, you've mentioned education several times and the outcomes, it, effects it has on health. We've known for decades that investing in early education is good for lots of outcomes, and yet, broadly speaking, as a society, we have not always made those investments. So <clears throat> when you pitch this as a health investment, or whether it's to other investors or to government at the, at the city, state, or federal level, how do we uh, make that case? So I'll just be really quick. Uh, I got a degree in economics, though I never went to class. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's pretty easy to make the economic case, especially now that we have big data. But it's ultimately not how you make the economic case. It's how you get the voters to get excited enough about it, to believe it, so that the politicians will think maybe this is something they need to pay attention to. And in essence, that's what we're trying to do with Wellville. We're trying to give stories and examples. And you know, like it or not, what they do in Finland doesn't impress people in Washington. But ideally, we hope that what happens in these small communities with mayors getting reelected and employers finding better employees with lower absenteeism, you know, 
we're, we're trying to make this tangible and concrete so that people's imaginations, as well as their spreadsheets, get excited. So I'll chime in with a disclaimer. I'm not an economist, and I don't even play one on TV. So, um, but I think that, you know, as I think about this, that part of it is not just about sort of convincing somebody that this is a health benefit. It's really about that human condition and that policy condition of trying to find where uh, agendas, mission, sometimes mandates align, right? So I don't need for everybody to be a believer in pre-K for its health benefits. What I need to do is to find people who have other reasons that they're going to support pre-K and exchange those ideas uh, and come together and support pre-K because it may support this, that, and the other and health benefits. Um, so I think that that's one thing. The other thing is, and I think that we're seeing uh, much more of it now, is really around um, civic engagement, around inequality, and beginning to understand um, inequities in terms of their uh, both causes, their longevity, sadly, uh, their long-term impacts, and how they cross uh, um, agendas. Um, and so that we're seeing, starting to see people aligning around policies that serve multiple agendas simultaneously, uh, including uh, reducing the uh, health inequities as we reduce um, other inequities. And civic engagement is actually really critically important, right? Uh, public health in particular, health in particular is about um, making choices together as a society about what's a public good. Um, and I'm just gonna give one example of sort of the, because it's a simple example and, uh, you know, trite in some ways, but in other ways not. So as a clinician, as a physician, you know, I really saw patients one-on-one -on -one, and that's critically important and really valuable um, and incredibly rewarding. As a public health practitioner, I think about ways that we can make structural and environmental changes around keeping people healthy and around keeping populations healthy, not just individuals. And I think uh, to those choices, an old choice that we made is clean water. People are drinking water here. The individual approach with full benefit of knowledge that clean water is important to health. We could, as a society, have decided that that was not a public good, that that was individual personal responsibility. And we could say, hey, individuals, every time you pour a glass of water or a picture of water, it may be rife with bacteria, it may be rife with uh, other pollutants, so it's up to you to boil it for three minutes or however long you need to boil it to kill the, the bacteria, use the appropriate filters to filter out other pollutants and then put it in the refrigerator as long as you want and drink it at will. We could say that is an individual responsibility, we know it's important, but we didn't say that. We said, hey, you know, this is so critically important to health and other outcomes that we are going to deem clean water a public good. We're going to uh, build systems at 
taxpayer expense. We are going to put regulatory systems in to ensure that those systems are working at taxpayer expense. We, uh, in many localities, are also going to support these investments through water bills that come to homeowners. But together, we have made a decision that this is a public good. That happens through civic engagement, and there are other opportunities where we can take the individual responsibility and understand that together we can get more value, protect health, protect communities, and not leave it up to one-on-one -on -one to protect yourself. Um, I, I would add that um, the way we, what I find interesting about the work we do is finding people that are equally committed for different reasons um, to the same goal. Like, I'm, I'm not getting grants, I am finding clients, and that means finding people who care about that benefit or that, you know, Walmart makes one out of every five dollars they make is from food stamps. It's a massive cash transfer in this country every year. That makes supermarkets, my friends, in ending poverty. They don't, their, their goal might be to get more cash revenue from food stamps in their supermarket, but by focusing on helping them serve that client, like getting creative with who else cares about your problem, and it might be self-interest, and that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm not, not judging, like, this, because who isn't innovating is the federal government at this moment. Who is? It's Amazon. Like, in January of last year, they got the ability to take food stamps online, which, thank heavens, a low-income working mom might be able to get something delivered at her house. Like, say what you will about Amazon, like they're innovating there for a specific reason and it's that one out of every five dollars that Walmart is making, that's why. But they're innovating and that to me makes them my potential friend because they're innovating in new, and they just started taking prescriptions. Did you hear that? Like they're gonna start, again, 160 billion a year we spend on Medicaid and Medicare um, prescription benefits. They're not, they're, they're, that Bezos guy is wicked smart. Like, <laughs> I, I, every, time you, every time I hear something about them, I'm like, oh, oh, and I think them and Walmart are in a straight fight right now. But for me, it's who's innovating, how can I help them do that better? If you want to help treat the community, do all the economic, you have to find new and different people to work with. Um, and they might have different reasons for the work, but it, it, you're pushing that agenda forward. And I think um, I see with what happened with ACA was a lot of talk about the whole community, treating the entire community, not just the illness. What I worry about with this whole climate is, does that go away? Kind of feels like there's been a shift where that might just remain, even if things get gutted or whatever, but that the consciousness has risen about that, and that gives me great um, hope for what's coming. So HealthWorks is a little bit operates on that model too, because you have to find private employers, whether they're payers or providers, health uh, hospitals or insurance companies, and convince them that the service you provide gives them a return on their investment 
<clears throat> when it comes to the, the money they expend taking care of people, so keeping them out of the emergency room. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how the, the ultimate goal, as, as the Deputy Mayor said, is, is one of keeping people healthier, but they may be doing it for their bottom line, and that's okay as long as the ultimate goal is, is met. Well, I think the um, because we spend so much in healthcare, there's just a lot of room for uh, making that case for ROI if you do something better. Um, and it depends on, it's not easy to do that for the less sick population because the ROI is just much longer term. But there's a large segment of our population for whom they're coming to the emergency room in the hospital. Average hospitalization is $10,000, and it's $15,000 if you're on Medicaid and Medicare because of folks who are older or who have more complications. And um, just as an example, some of the patients we work with have congestive heart failure. Um, folks who are being referred to us have typically are coming in once a month. And as we've been working with these patients, we're doing a very simple, you can think of it as a three-month treatment, only good side effects of meeting with them one-on-one -on -one and saying, do you understand your condition? And what's been so, I'm not a clinician, and what's been kind of really heartbreaking for me is the, 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 the reality that for most people we're working with, it's, they've been diagnosed with a diabetes or asthma or hypertension for many, many years, some of them for decades, and it's the first time someone's actually giving them the time in a, in a personalized way to their specific life circumstance and saying, um, how do we you know, work with you to, what do you understand now? How can I help you fully understand what you, what's relevant to your, your situation? Um, for many of them, it's the first time they're really understanding what blood sugar means, um, let alone how to then manage it. Um, and especially with diet, there's so much misinformation um, and a lot of entities that kind of capitalize on people's lack of awareness um, that makes it very confusing. And when nutrition is not a core part of medical or healthcare system, um, it's really challenging given the majority of our health burden is chronic illness. Um, and so when I say healthcare, I think what's exciting to me is this, you know, I think we are in a moment in which the industry is realizing we don't do health. And that what we're essentially contributing to in this movement is to say, if you give somebody a trusted a person to talk to, a human being, and for us what we do is hire people who are from the community who have a minimum of a high school education, um, that they can build a um, confidence, a capability to equip someone to manage the next 10, 20, 30 years of their life more um, and, and live their healthiest day, um, by giving a very simple prescription, which is one-on-one -on -one conversations and education that's personalized to say, these are, you know, these are your medications. These, you know, this is what it means to um, uh, experience this type of symptom. When you experience this, do I? Um, and I th so, you know, essentially, it's giving people the knowledge of their bodies. And I think that what our medical model is very much, let me tell, I'm going to tell you this is what you have to do or this is the information, go home and do this, versus um, let's teach you how to understand, how to under, you know, hear and feel and know what's happening with your body before it becomes a crisis. Um, so I think the, the, um, the, a big challenge in the whole discussion and policy world around social determinants of health has been this wrong pocket problem that if you invest in better you know, employment for someone, then it's going to improve their health, but who's seeing that return? Um, there's a lot of room for improvement just within health, 
the, the health domain to improve to see a return that is seen that is realized within the pockets of an insurer or a hospital. Um, and so we've been focused on that sort of um, higher need population, not the sickest, certainly, but people who have one, two, or three, or four more chronic illnesses um, to help them live their healthiest day and then see those returns. Um, so it's, it's also fortunate because the financial return is quite aligned with the social benefit. It's not always the case. You know, you began your your first question and the and Esther, your work uh, in the communities thinking about sort of the the return on investment and the premise that investing in this actually is also investing in a more prosperous uh, society. And I think that there is clear evidence that a healthy society is in fact a more prosperous society. And I think, uh, you know, to your point, businesses uh, are uh, really beginning to more and more recognize that investment in uh, employee health is uh, an investment in society. For the city, we have the dual, uh, we have a sort of dual lens because we are a large employer. Uh, so investing in our own workforce is uh, that as the lens of an employer. So thinking about the, you know, under this administration, the, the um, Office of Labor Relations has really uh, uh, been able to, um, to see many health savings that have been reinvested in things like getting better um, uh, prevention benefits, better primary care benefits, thinking about ourselves as an employer, but we're an employer of 300,000 people with about a million uh, covered people. So that's, you know, it's a sizable proportion of New Yorkers. So it's a benefit to our workforce as an employer, but it's a benefit to the community as a whole. Um, and I think that for those uh, larger employers, especially who are really thinking about sort of their community benefits and uh, their participation, and as I said, I'm gonna keep coming back to the sort of civic engagement, their participation, that is an investment. Um, we are still, for the moment, largely employer-based in terms of uh, you know health plans and uh, in terms of health coverage. So I think that is a place where we need to look at uh, for a large part of that investment. I would just build on that to say also the, um, the, the you know, I think the role of employers in providing insurance has been a, certainly a norm in this country, but that the you know, big part of the, um, uh, what's been exciting about our work is that we're, most of our health coaches are women, they're not all women, and we really want this to be a job for men, but um, for those who are women, two of them, or three of us, including myself, have had maternity leave during the course of being employed at City HealthWorks, and we pay a lot of attention to making it a family-friendly work environment, having, um, and, I, and I think the, when one of our employees went on maternity leave, she, we worked a lot with her to make her return very flexible, uh, she's a health coach. Um, she's someone without a college education whose access to jobs are in are typically going to be jobs in the marketplace that are not going to give her maternity leave, that are not give her flexibility. Um, and we were, you know, very conscious of thinking about how do we structure her day so that she can breastfeed. Where are we going to create a space so she can breastfeed for as long as she wants to? When she said she wanted to have more time to bond with her family, she felt confident to do ask that because she saw that I as the CEO had done that and sort of modeled that behavior to say 
no, I don't work around the clock. I hardly ever do events like this in the evenings. I have two little ones. Or, you know, that, that she then felt more empowered to kind of ask for things that she wouldn't have in another environment. Um, and so I think the responsibility of the private sector, of public, you know, jobs, to think about, you know, why is it that women leave the workplace? For many of them, it's, well, they can't afford enough sick days to burden themselves and their kids. Or, you know, and so it's a... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, a pocket that's going to see the return more immediately if you don't lose that employee. But again, a cultural sh cultural shift to see it as an investment to say, let's let this person have a bit more time. It, that sounds so nice. And at the same time, you're seeing more and more people end up in the gig economy with two or three jobs, but yep. no employer. Yep. So there's there's a big contradiction here. You have more attention and theory being paid to this stuff, but in, in reality, less and less. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, Esther, you, you raise a good point right there, which is, I think, that often the solutions, if they're rolled out, you know, are things that we think are the next new shiny thing. They get rolled out very fast, um, which is not necessarily uh, bad in and of itself but they get rolled out layered on top of some very persistent, very pervasive inequities. And they don't end up, you, can, you know, it's very hard to think about a tech solution or a sharing economy solution, which, you know, people were very excited about. But even in and of themselves, without sort of fixing some of the underlying parts of our system that are broken, they end up either reproducing or, in some cases, amplifying uh, very many of those uh, societal burdens. Yeah, so I've, I've recently, I, I work out of the Meetup offices, and Meetup just got acquired yeah, by WeWork. Right. But it's, it's really interesting. WeWork is now doing some really cool stuff. They're putting gyms in their buildings. They're thinking more about life outside the office and, and sort of extending this notion of taking more care of the people who come there to work. But at the same time, they're going after corporate employers. And you know, I'm not privy to how the economic slash math works, and I'm not privy to how the strategy works. But it, it seems to me that, once again, who's willing to invest in the long-term health of these people, it's, it's not the people themselves because they might not have, have the cash to invest. It's, it's big employers who have that surplus that they can spend. And even there, they're not willing to train their employees very often. And I once asked the head of Aetna, when you do your calculations about the return on stuff you do as an insurer, what is your assumption about the length of time that any given customer is going to be with you? And he refused to answer. It's, mm. it's on the order of two to three years, I discovered. But it's like, how can you do long-term investing when, for Medicaid, it's worse. It's eight and a half months. Right. And that's something I think we, should, we haven't really talked about yet, but <clears throat> excuse me. You mentioned uh, the gig economy. And one of the problems, I think, whether it's private or public, we all have is that we tend to solve yesterday's problem or think about yesterday's problems. Um, we're going toward an economy where more people work for themselves. 
they are working two or three jobs or, or two or three shifts, however you define it, to make ends meet without health benefits or maternity benefits or sick leave. Um, and we're, we're still at the beginning of, of this automated uh, evolution or revolution. There are going to be a lot more industries, I think, that are going to replace traditional jobs. So are we, are we doing enough, both as a private sector and public sector, to think about what it looks like when truck drivers are out of work because we have autonomous <coughs> vehicles, excuse me. So can I just, can we ask our audience how many of you have a single employer who gives you health benefits? Okay. Okay, wait, I just want to do one fun one for me. How many of you have been to a primary care provider in the last year? Oh, that's pretty good. That's way higher than usual. How many know your primary care provider in that if you ran into them at Walmart or you know, more likely Whole Foods here? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that, what we think the future of work is going to look like and how that's going to relate to some of our, whether it's public health efforts, private health uh, efforts, where do we think this is going? Um, I'm, uh, you know, um, I'm not an economist, but I do policy, um, and you know what I see the need for, and it's not going to happen in this moment in time, but um, you know the conversation is, and it's getting pushed by kind of Silicon Valley even right now. It's the universal basic income. It's the single payer system. You know, anybody? Does everybody know what yes to single or universal basic income? I mean, basically, it's the idea where everybody is guaranteed twenty thousand a year or something like that. Just it's not welfare. It's not. It's just your guaranteed basic income. My concern when a bunch of tech people all get together and start talking universal basic income <laughs> is what are the stipulations to build that up? Because I hear a lot of Republicans really liking that idea too, and that tells me there's some shenanigans that are about to happen. <laughs> like, well, no, because if you, if you give everybody universal basic income, but then take away public housing, take away health care, that 20,000 means nothing, right? Like it has, to be, it has to be a thing, but not get rid of every other system we have, which is often, you know what, so like thoughtful placement of things like that, single payer, you know, like it's 60% it, like of us are not salaried employees in America, 60%. You know, 60% of us do not have a salary, meaning we also probably don't have that employer taking care of us. You know, median income is 50000 that's 103 million of us are working poor. These are crazy. Like, the, so much of us is getting are getting squished at that bottom level where two jobs only get you 40,000 a year, which in you know maybe that you can make that work in Florida. So maybe not. Like, but that you can't make it in New York City, and that's where the opportunities are um, in the big cities now. But then. The income's not there. So the, the kind of thoughtful policy making, which is here is where we are as a country, here's who's working and not, what, how can we catch those people? Um, and what I think gets in us in trouble, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, was um, the personal responsibility piece that 
Americans hold dearly to is that you know if you if you wanted it bad enough you you'd get out of whatever troubles you're in and that is where the policy gets tricky. I, I think there's a lot more to to life and to health than just the money. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that the money doesn't matter, but I'd much rather see, and this is not like you need to work for Medicaid, but people want purpose. And I would much rather see us subsidize the salaries of teachers and caregivers and, you know, because then you get the benefit both of the person being paid to do the work and the work they're doing keeping other people healthy. And that's, to some extent, if there's one thing we want to do in our communities, it's to train people to become caregivers, teachers, educators to other people in the community. And then you, you build that social fabric in and people feel useful. I spent a lot of time in Russia where people did useless jobs and I'm convinced that was the cause of much of the alcoholism and a lot of the depression and everything else. I strongly agree in terms of the importance of work as a um, enabler of a sense of confidence, of purpose, of being going home and feeling like your family is proud or, you know, it's so important. And I think part of also what, um, to your question about what the future of work is going to look like, I mean, the, the, I don't remember the specific figures, but the aging population, the need for caregivers, we already have a shortage, it's going to continue to grow. But to make it meaningful work, we have to shift our mindset from it not being a $13,000 on average a year job, but a job that's paid for. But part of that and is dignity. also with dignity. But I think my you know, perspective on and I started my career working on, on regulated jobs and kind of the poor work environment, the, 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 the high rate of violations in jobs that are not regulated, not just because it's an undocumented person, but kind of low wage gig economy jobs essentially. And the, um, you know, the, the, what motivated me to start City HealthWorks was to say if we can take a worker who has a minimum of a high school education and invest, pay them to train them and build a skill and a trade for them on this job that generates an enormous amount of value, we can create a market incentive to pay better. And I think that's been a major, um, it's a major need in the home care sector as well, is, is not just saying we need to pay better, but also give them the you know, change policy to also enable them to do more that adds more value to care to kind of make that case to make the payment higher. So I know that we want to leave some time for questions, but I want to ask one more of sort of the whole panel. <clears throat> we've talked, I don't want to, this to be too much of an echo chamber, but we, we've talked about things that are very common sense solutions. Pay more for uh, home care workers and, and with the aging population, invest in primary and, and pre-K things like that, these, what in your minds are the biggest obstacles to getting the things done that we all agree with, or you all agree with, that most people in this room would go, oh, of course. So why, you know, why doesn't it get done? What's, the, what's holding it back? Is it electoral? Is it financial? I, I think a big piece of it is that our, um, uh, horizon is so short-term and thinking as we've been talking about and uh, Esther and Dr. Plessy can certainly, uh, the group can share more, but I think in, in healthcare, as we know, the people churn in and out of plans, so there's no incentive to think about the long-term and um, in so many sect sectors of our society, um, certainly on the government side, I think that plus, uh, just coming back to healthcare fee-for-service, 
this incentives are poorly aligned with actually doing a good job. There's no alignment there. So, I mean, that's industrial totally complex problem. Yeah, I mean, they're clear winners, and there's a large segment of clear people who don't. Uh, I, I mean, I would say that some of our inability to move there is not accidental, right? Some of it is um, things that are happen happening at the federal level that are, in fact, uh, very directed, very intentional, not accidental. And uh, some of it is about very, very different value systems in terms of uh, what we're going to support and what we're not going to support. Um, some of the things um, happening privately that are n not necessarily bad, but are also, you know, not completely accidental, right? The, the gig economy, at least some of the gig economy, is still actually really supporting the, you know, fairly uh, lucrative uh, corporate structures, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so it is a new model um, of uh, of accumulating wealth in relatively narrow places, and it goes to your incentives. Um, but it takes some difficult choices to think about how you realign those incentives in a way to support. I think it, it clearly can be done. I think you see some of that happening locally. I think you see some of that happening in other cities locally, but it's uh, even from a city as large and robust as New York, I think it's hard to take some of those things to scale um, in other entities where uh, the infrastructure, the regulatory tools, frankly, that are available to uh, governments to incentivize or disincentivize uh, certain things aren't the same uh, across, uh, even at the local level, and certainly aren't the same at the federal level. I don't say that to be pessimistic because I think it's, in fact, that there are real rays of uh, opportunity, there are real rays of hope, and I think that there are ways to think about lessons and build on the successes rather than just identify gaps. Um, and I think that sometimes in the in moment of crises is where you um, also get some of the most creativity and sort of a big push forward. Um, uh, you know, that's, uh, that goes beyond uh, incrementalism. Um, and I'll just add that um, for me, because I, I, I look at the policy, you know, that's where my, my skill set is, that um, the more we, you mentioned earlier that, you know, low-wage workers, it is the gig economy, but we all kind of think of gig economy as everybody at WeWork or something, that the gig economy is a lot of people working hourly with not, um, with no real ties to support systems in the workplace, and that the more we can all change that conversation to be the 60% of us and not make it this, this um, lazy person who's not doing, an, you know, that we all, like, I'm very vocal about my own troubles, my own, you know, that this is, when we can put it on somebody else, like, they're not doing stuff, that they're not taking care of themselves, that is where um, we have bifurcation of policies, where we're trying to help these people that are working, entrepreneur thing, but these people who are salary, or 
hourly wage aren't that kind of, you know, that we all need to work better at the language we use for all of us, that this isn't, um, that when we talk about gig economy that we include low wage workers in there and for protections for all of, all of us and up because um, the, the people most hurt by these policy changes right now um, are the most vulnerable and when they get hurt, it hurts all of us in one way or the other. So using more inclusive language and I'm going to take home that I might be renting health right now and I'm <laughs> gonna have to figure out what that means. <laughs> so I want to pick back up on this issue of time and tell you about really the most exciting intellectual discovery I've made in the past five years, which at the same time, the challenge is how do you put it into practice? So I've been learning about and studying addiction and reading a whole lot of stuff. And it seems pretty clear addiction is, you know, it's, no, it's not a moral failing. No, it's not a disease. Uh, the next version was it's a learning disorder, but it's actually learning from disorder. It's good learning, or I mean, it's, it's accurate, appropriate learning if you grow up in an environment where sometimes you come home and your mother screams at you, and sometimes she's nice, sometimes you get food, sometimes you don't. You become the kind of kid who grabs the first marshmallow and doesn't wait for a second because, hey, the kid has learned life is insecure. And so you become very short-term oriented. And when you become addicted, you focus almost exclusively on that thing you're addicted to, whether it's a cell phone or votes or <laughs> stock market movements or you know all these other things. And the past fades away and you, you feel you have no agency to move from the present at that obsession to any kind of change in the future. You just focus on doing the same thing again and again. And that's ironically what is happening, not just with addicted people, but in our communities with people running health pilots. I wanted to write an article called, we don't need no stinking pilots. We need rollouts, we need permanent change. We need to do things at scale. And we've become a society that's so short term, but in everything from our eating habits to our long-term investing habits. I want to make sure we have some time for questions. So uh, please, in the back, you, you got your hand up first. Okay. Well, there were a lot of, I'll start. There was a, a lot. Uh, all right. There is a lot there. So let me just, as a point of clarification, I actually wasn't, when I was using international samples, I was absolutely not talking about social medicine. That wasn't where I was anchoring myself. I was actually anchoring myself in investments in the social determinants. Um, and I'll use New York City as an example, right? So investments in affordable housing, now up 300,000 affordable housing units over a year. You can be skeptical, but those are big investments you know, from an administration who's actually putting real money, right, not mouth, real money into, into these things, pre-K, 
$70,000, um, sorry, 70,000 students in uh, universal pre-K. These things aren't just investments of public dollars. Actually, you talked about the wealth transfer of like uh, SNAP benefits into Walmart. This is a wealth transfer of like taxpayer dollars into the homes of parents who don't have to spend this money on kids. So these are real tangible things that affect people's lives. Pre-K, the housing, it's not like we've got it all fixed, but it is a conscientious effort to talk, to work on vulnerable populations, the most vulnerable in a city that any, everybody knows is unaffordable. So there are ways for governments to actually put <coughs> their money where their values are. And I think you can see an example of that. So it's not that it can't be done. And I'm not saying that this administration has everything absolutely perfect. There's always more work to do. And you know, stay tuned. I think you'll see some more work that's coming down. So as a broad position, I wasn't talking about socialized medicine. I was talking about the difference between investing uh, an incredible proportion of uh, our government money on the GDP basis on a healthcare industry versus on some of these other really broad structural social determinants and addressing equity inequities up front to try to get to a better place, not in a year, not in two years, but over a lifetime and across generations. Because those investments in pre-K, the, the payoff is not right now. The payoff is later, and it's recognition that we're going to pay money now and invest not just in the benefits of saved healthcare costs, but actually improved lives. So that's a starter. The second, uh, what? I'm sorry, somebody else raised their hand. That's you okay. Were, I, no, 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 I apologize. I no, no, no. <laughs> if you want to, uh, you know, the, the, um, the accountability issue. So on the, on the, on the racial apartheid, uh, you know, very highly charged. And so I would say, I think I would caution all of us to go hard at the real structural racism that exists in this country over and over again. But Medicaid, right, is one of those programs that though across states isn't used as effectively as it could be. And there are many states that are in fact trying to very intentionally make Medicaid hard to get because it precisely actually, it is precisely set to level the playing field and get people access. So I think we need to be conscientious about where we're using the language. You were using the language about physicians. Physicians, for better or worse, in this country have to make a living. Many of them come out with a lot of debt. Medicaid and states, that's a terrible payer. Physicians can't make a living on, on those states where Medicaid is a terrible payer. So we've got really big structural problems, but the structural problems are around making, are around not making Medicaid a terrible payer, are around forcing patients to re-enroll in some states almost monthly, that's changed but to certify for qualification. So if the name of the game is to keep people off Medicaid, that I would say is a real structural problem that is made to oppress poor people. If the name of the game is trying to figure out how to expand Medicaid using waivers to allow you to cover uninsured populations, because I love the Affordable Care Act, but it 
didn't go far enough, right? There are huge parts of our population that are not covered at all still. But I like my Obamacare. I love it. Yeah, I love, my I love it. We need, <laughs> but, but it left some populations ineligible for it, right? There's some people who can't get Obamacare. So there is real structural racism in this country. There's real institutional racism in this country. And doctors are not saints. So I'm not saying, and there's, <laughs> no. We're not saints and we have issues, but one of the race, ways to address them is to actually try to diversify the ranks, of the, the ranks of the people making decisions. Because who you are determines the kinds of questions you ask. Who you are determines the kinds of data you seek to collect. Who you are determines the kinds of what, the ways you, you interpret the data that you're getting back. So unless we have different voices in the room asking the right questions, making the right, uh, challenging the data, collecting the data sets in a different way, we're not going to get there. But I'm not hopeless. I'm absolutely hopeful. So I appreciate your challenge. <laughs> Ma'am, you had a question? Yes. Uh, Chris Norwood. Well, let's take that. I mean, yeah, let's talk I'm about diabetes, say, please. I have Eric Adams as my borough president. Yes. And hello, hello for oh. Eric Adams. So, so, but just for the record, the <laughs> Department of Health and Mental Hygiene has actually very recently re-upped a very significant uh, ad campaign. You may not have seen it. And there's a lot of work. Obesity is actually one of the primary predictors of diabetes. There's a lot of work around obesity prevention. There is work around diabetes prevention. New York City Health Department was the first health department in the nation, I believe, predated my arrival here, to actually make a hemoglobin A1C a reportable condition. Uh, so they've got a, an A1C registry tracking diabetes. So there has been, in all fairness to the city, not related to my arrival, they have done, diabetes is clearly an important aspect. Um, we can all disagree, but it, I wanted to, for the record, state some of the facts that were, that there have been, in fact, campaigns around sugary sweetened beverages. And, of course, when Bloomberg tried to do something serious, he got oh, yeah. decimated. Right, um, okay. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about New York, or, but just two things. One, part of the challenge is people are starting to take it for granted. And it's, it's a very complicated topic. The connection with obesity, you know, it's, it's good not to do fat shaming, but it's also not good when people think obesity is a norm and don't understand the health impacts. I was visiting with a Native American tribe chief and I was asking him about their big problems and he said, well, of course it's, it's diabetes, look at me. He was 300 pounds. Uh, I'm gonna get it, my aunt had it, she lost her leg, my mother. We need this healthcare system to offer more bariatric surgery. And uh, here in New York, the YMCA offers a diabetes prevention, prevention course, program. but the numbers are pathetic, I'll be candid. And CMS, finally, they just 2018, they will pay for pre-diabetes pre diabetes prevention for Medicare. You could do so much more good if you would also do it with Medicaid. And it's, it's one of the cheapest, highest return things we could do. And, you know, 
that to me is inexplicable, except again, diabetes, like drug addiction, is considered a disease more of poor people. And it's, it's just... You had a question? Yes, yes. Okay. Hi, um, my question is actually for my niece. Yes. City Health Works. I have two questions. So this may be a bit ahead of the curve, but mm -hmm. have you seen this pool or demand for more culturally relevant uh, practices when it comes to lifestyle and matching what they're eating and the behaviors that they have and looking at that as prevention measure? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is also going a bit further, looking at um, the gut and the, and the bacteria that's subjected to your gut and are using that as a way to address some of the uh, issues in healthcare. So I don't know enough to speak to the second question, um, but I will learn a bit more about it, given my current level of knowledge about it. But um, on the first one, our suspicion, our sense in starting the organization was that if we hired locally, it would make a big difference. And actually, I, when we started City Health Works because DPP was the gold standard. I got trained as a DPP coach, and my our first employee, we both got trained, and that's what we we tested it out at a food pantry. Uh, one of the most highest volume ones in the city in East Harlem and found that people didn't want to ask their questions in a group and that people found it very hard to come to a sing at the same time every week. And so after that summer, the two coaches that we had hired part-time in that initial phase who were delivering it said, please make this one-on-one, -on -one. please make this one-on-one -on -one. because we're just sitting there in the evenings sitting one-on-one -on -one with people to talk about health, which is deeply personal and driven by many stressors that people don't want to share in a group. And also, food is, is a loaded topic that people have their stigmas, there's, you know. And so um, we decided to use the American Association of Diabetes Educators curriculum so that it was evidence-based and created a very personalized approach. And when we get a patient, we look at their demographic and say, if it's a Puerto Rican client, uh, we match them with our Puerto Rican coach. It's not just that they're Spanish speaking. Think about which, are they a recent migrant? We match them with a coach who's more of a recent migrant. If they're older, you know, uh, gender, we think a lot about that matching. And um, uh, we're, I just came from DC where we're doing work with the Urban Institute that's doing qualitative research and just interviewed um, uh, about 20 patients who were part of our uh, one of the hospitals that we work with, and one of them was saying, enough of the my plate. I'm tired of the my plate. This is a client who, you know, is a patient of a safety net system, has lots of stressors, but is proactive about going to her appointments and finding out some information about diabetes, but it wasn't personalized to her. And the big difference was this is a person who gets it. They're from, they're not just Latina or Latinx, you know, but they're from East Harlem. They know this neighborhood. They know, you know, they might know my niece from school. You know, the, the, that, that trust that is built is so powerful. But it also is, I think, the big part of why prevention doesn't get paid for is that it there's not a magic bullet. It's real, a lot of it is just sitting down and talking to somebody. And whether it's an, even in a group setting, which is super cheap, it's cheaper than us going, you know, one-on-one -on -one to someone's home. But even what we do is not nearly the cost of... What we do over the course of the year is less than half the cost of one of those emergency room visits, a third or a quarter of the cost. And on a, and for um, you know for the patients that we got referred, we're getting a lot of data in the coming year. But from our early data, people who had been referred from a primary care setting, not even from a hospital, they didn't they weren't just sitting with an amputation. They were coming from primary care, who had di poorly controlled diabetes. 
we had a $600 per member per month drop in spending by week 10. It was $900 per member per month by month five. So if you actually sit down with someone and they, you just enable them to understand what is going on with their body and not just rush them through the door and not just say, here's the next drug. And, you know, I talked to a lot of clinicians who say that I don't even really spend time on the nutritional stuff, one, because they don't know it. It's not required part of education for nurses or doctors. Um, and, and then two, because they just assume that the patient's not going to get it. And so talk about bias, of implicit biases and all kinds of stuff in there. And so having it be culturally relevant is important, but it's more than that. I mean, people get irritated by getting these handouts without contextualizing it to their life. It's more than just a handout. Could you go ahead, then? Um, yeah, so my name's Jeff Bonner. I'm with a company, Totally Pregnant. We have a mobile app for pregnant moms. <laughs> and, um, so my question is, is with, with my app, I've kind of I've been kind of proud. Hey, I figured out if you sell it to the marketing department of a hospital, they got money, they'll spend money. Because when I tried to sell it to someone who was interested in improving outcomes, there isn't anyone like that in most hospitals. Or it's very abstract. You know, it's just, you can't find anyone who's got a budget to improve outcomes. And, so I'm, all of you are really engaged with that problem. And so I'm really interested in your thoughts about how do we get the system to start to take, to yeah. really focus on how to improve that. You want me to start? Yeah, I mean, I think part, a big challenge is that the, um, well, one, it's, it's not the payer. In, for, in, in New York and in many markets, it's fee for service. So the payer is actually the insurer, not the hospital unless it's Kaiser or Geisinger or one of those wonderful closed systems. Um, but the other piece of it is that the, you know, New York State got $8 billion for Disrup, and I'm one of the unlucky people who've had to spend way too many times and hours in meetings for Disrup planning and Disrup reporting and Disrup this and that. But it has been, you know, I'm also one of the folks who's kind of like, why, why aren't, three years in, why aren't we spending more money on delivery reform? <laughs> There are various reasons, but I think part of it, to be fair to the challenge and how complex it is, is that um, changing the delivery of care, this is you know, just even on the clinical side, before we even get to the preventative side, and is, requires so many stakeholders. Um, just for us to sell a service that to one health system, now we're working with two or three, um, has required getting to be, you know, buy-in of social work, of all the different specialists involved, of the administrative side. It's not just like you sell to a CFO or a, it has to make sense to so many different parts of that ecosystem. Um, and so uh, some of the systems in New York were kind of even not like interested in taking the district money because um, they're like, it's just too much effort to change how we are doing things. And you can't switch the incentive system overnight and expect that in five years, you're going to have 90% of payments be you know, value-based that quickly, because you've got to change the delivery of care. So it is, it is a fix. I think it's an addressable problem, but it is not. And it, it requires changing how we, how we the experience of care first before you change how you pay for it, and then getting the outcomes to show it to make the case. You have a question? I was on a couple of public boards in the Obama administration, one in national parks. We had to do a lot with getting people out in the parks. This is for the Deputy Health Commissioner. Can you give us an overview right now of where ACA stands 
Nobody's really talked about that tonight in terms of bottom line figures. You know, I mean, in other words, this is going to be wiped out eventually, I would imagine. Um, and what also does this budget that's going to be passed, I think, as well, they call it budgets, the tax bill. What are the implications and what are the bottom line for that? So, I, you know, I think that the truth is we don't actually really know. I mean, it's been very hard. It's it's day to day, week to week, sometimes hour to hour, uh, frankly, watching what's happening uh, in the current Congress with respect to the Affordable Care Act or, or uh, Obamacare. I think for New York State and New York City, there's a couple of things to watch for that are um, very, that are critically important. One is uh, around uh, Medicaid and how the federal government is going to deal with Medicaid. Are they going to continue to fund it as an entitlement or are they going to uh, transition to a block grant? Uh, you know, I think uh, this Congress is probably uh, predisposed to go block grant, and I, block, right, block grant would be devastating. So, you know, they basically, is a big block of money, the, the expenditures, do not get to continue to rise as people uh, need the services. And block grants are usually at the beginning of, uh, you know, you get, they are sometimes based on, usually based on historical spending for the first year and they trend down. It's not clear to me that this Congress would even start there. So I think that's number one. I think number two, the biggest peril is um, disproportionate share um, hospital costs. Yeah, you know, right now those are set to expire in the current Affordable Care Act. Are those going to get, are those cuts going to get delayed? If not, I think that will also be a uh, major significant uh, hit. I think the instability uh, in the markets, I think the ability, you know, disrupt certainly not perfect, and New York State doesn't have it right, but the whole theory there is that you are going to change how you think about uh, delivering care so that it's not, you're not getting paid for doing stuff, which is, you know, fee for service. You get paid for the visit, you get paid for the blood test, you get paid for the x ray test, you get paid for the hospital admission. And if the person leaves the hospital and gets readmitted a week later, you get paid for that hospital admission as well, right? The Affordable Care Act began to change that paradigm and say we shouldn't pay for stuff, we should pay for the outcome. We should pay for you not being admitted to the hospital for decompensated asthma. We should pay for your being discharged for your congestive heart failure and not coming back in 30 days. We should pay for, for your diabetes being in good control, not your coming back when your diabetes is and bad control. But you're right, changing, number one, medical education, changing uh, behavior, changing incentives uh, takes time. And right now, I think people, you know, there's a little bit of like uh, paralysis uh, in, in many, in many uh, places. I would say that, you know, part out of uh, the fiscal crisis, but really, you know, health and hospitals, a publicly financed system here, which was facing a looming crisis even before some of this started, we've really been anchoring transformation not on, uh, not on 
solving the financial problems for the purpose of the financial problems, but to make it financially solvent so that we can deliver high quality care to the most vulnerable New Yorkers. And that is a firm commitment even of this administration, even in the face of the kinds of federal uncertainty that we're facing because we think that vulnerable New Yorkers more than ever uh, need to be able to depend on a reliable healthcare system. All of, all of uh, my very strong belief that we need to, and, and all of the uh, investments and all of the social determinants, we still have people who get sick. We need to have a place to take care of people who get sick. It's getting the um, signal just, that it's time to wrap up. So, so block grant, just I need every smart person in this room to understand that block grant means we did welfare reform, we moved it to block grant. People used to get welfare right from the government. Now, Mississippi takes that money. Louisiana, I think, gives 11% of that money to poor people. And they use the 89% to fill all the holes in their budget. So the money that used to be going directly to the people, and there is no reason to think that would not be exactly what states start to do, which is just take that money and do with it whatever they want because there's there they decide. So block grants, when it comes to low-income families, always ends badly for them. Just needed that to be clear. <laughs> so I'm, I'm being told that we're running out of time, so I just want to personally thank uh, the panelists who are up here with me. This was a, a treat for me, so thank you very much. I hope everyone enjoyed. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.